You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Curry Bordelon. Today, we're privileged to have experts in epidemiology, virology, and infectious disease to discuss reducing the spread of COVID opportunities and challenges. Thank you all for joining us today. As we get started, let's spend a little time going around the panel and introducing yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do within healthcare. Dr. Eaton. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I am an infectious diseases physician at UAB. I also do health services research, and I got involved with coronavirus early in the pandemic through social media, a lot of public health messaging around ways to keep our community safe. And then I was asked to join the Jefferson County Coronavirus Task Force and their incident command to specifically work with the, the branch of special populations. So our task was to keep vulnerable vulnerable groups safe, like those that are homeless, unhoused, um, those with disabilities. So um, did a lot of community-based work then. And then now, more recently, I'm seeing patients in the clinic and the hospital who have coronavirus, and then working to get vaccination amongst my patients out in the community to prevent coronavirus infection. Excellent. Thank you so much. Dr. Judd. Hi. Yeah, I'm Suzanne Judd. I'm an epidemiologist in the UAB School of Public Health. Uh, epidemiologist, for those of you that don't think about it, it's a study of epidemics. It really is looking at what's normal in the population versus uh, what's abnormal, because really the definition of an epidemic just means something that occurs at a higher rate than normal. Uh, so a lot of what I've done during the pandemic is help people understand what normal is, when we're starting to see surges, um, and when we should start to be concerned, because the, the data are showing that uh, what we would predict happening is um, happening at a higher rate than, than what we would think. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, you know, you, you bring up data and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about data uh, during our episode today. Dr. Moore. Thank you for having me. My name is Ian Moore. I'm a veterinary pathologist and infectious disease researcher at the National Institutes of Health. Um, I'm originally from Alabama. Um, but I'm in Maryland now, and I'm coming uh, coming, coming from the NIH uh, essentially to talk to you about various parts of the vaccine development process. Um, back in early 2020, um, I started working with the, the team that developed the Moderna vaccine. Uh, my lab did all of the preclinical safety and efficacy pathology studies. Um, and so we essentially helped that vaccine get to human clinical trials and ultimately to uh, emergency, youth, emergency use authorization and where it is right now. So I'm um, looking forward to uh, a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, we're, we're excited about uh, our conversation today. So we have a lot to cover. So we really want to kind of get into, uh, as we have our discussion today, we want to talk about some of the things about where we are. Where are we not only in the pandemic, but in the vaccination process and where we are in the cycle uh, and so forth, but also what are obstacles to improving not only our treatment, but for certainly our vaccination uh, among our populations, but also what are some other opportunities for success uh, in, in combating uh, this, uh, this uh, ongoing pandemic. So let's spend a little time about where we are. Where are we now? Dr. Judd? Yeah, so at the moment we're experiencing another surge. Some people call it the third surge. Some people call it the fourth surge, depending on uh, where you set the timeline and, and what you're talking about. But in Alabama specifically, it's really our third surge. This is the third time that we've seen cases spike 
well above the level that's comfortable for our healthcare system. And that's why we care with this particular virus. This virus has a very high rate of putting people in the hospital when they become infected, which means the hospital beds get taken up, the hospital staff have to be um, serving more patients than they would normally serve. So we keep our eye on those things, the, the rate of cases and the rate of hospitalizations. Nationwide, it's very similar. We're seeing cases go up quite a bit across the United States. It started in the Southeast, but it's spreading out. And then if we look worldwide, we also see that the uh, cases are starting to increase in certain countries, although other countries like India already had a pretty heavy surge from Delta. We think now as epidemiologists that this is probably what the new normal will be with COVID. There will be surges that will go up and down, very similar to what we see with a seasonal influenza. We had originally hoped this would be more like measles, where we could develop a vaccine and eradicate the virus, which eradicate just means get rid of so that we don't have to deal with it as a human population. It's what we hoped for, but it looks like this one's going to be much more like uh, influenza, which has a seasonal component to it. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for that update. This is really good information when we start having our conversation uh, about our challenges and our opportunities. So this is really good. Dr. Eaton, I'd like to spend a little time about uh, talking about where we are in this pandemic from your perspective. Yeah, so as a clinician here in the Deep South, um, I can say, I can amplify everything Dr. Judd mentioned. Our clinics are really overwhelmed in terms of bandwidth, we're getting calls, we're getting requests for laboratory testing, we're getting requests for outpatient treatments. There's really just one um, effective outpatient treatment, which is monoclonal antibody. But you can imagine in a community like ours, where only 40% are fully vaccinated, there are a lot of people getting sick and requesting tests, requesting monoclonal antibody. And then if they do not farewell in the outpatient setting. Unfortunately, a lot of them are being admitted to our hospitals. So our clinicians on the front lines, including myself, when I'm on the infectious diseases wards, I mean, it's really just um, an astronomical number of patients who are coming in. I think when we see the daily numbers on the news, what people forget is that not only are we seeing hundreds of patients with coronavirus, but we're seeing a, a lot of turnover. So what I mean by that is that um, unfortunately every day we're seeing deaths in our hospitals and there is a new patient to fill that empty bed almost as quickly as someone passes away. We have a backlog in the emergency departments. So as soon as there's a bed available, either someone improved and that's what we always hope for, but unfortunately often they pass away and then we're going right to that long queue, that long waiting area in the emergency departments across our state and really our country and bringing up the next patient. So it's that churn that is exhausting. It involves everyone from environmental services who has to clean that room to the nursing staff getting checkout to the physicians having to stabilize that patient. Um, so really just the turn, the physical demand on our clinicians long hours over time, um, and then the emotional and, and mental health demand when you're dealing with so many patients who are frankly not going to make it. By the time they come to you, the chances that they may, may not make it out of the hospital are pretty high. Uh, certainly, and thank you so much for that perspective from the clinical side. And it's one of the things that uh, being as in nursing, as well in medicine and so forth, advanced practice as well, it's really is testing our resilience at a whole different level and our availability, not only for resources, but for ourselves uh, and for our community. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that patient population in this wave and how it has become a lot of the unvaccinated, if you will. We're gonna talk about that in just a minute as well, but I'd like to hear, uh, I'd, I'd like to hear more from the NIH perspective of where we are. I'd like to hear from uh, Dr. Moore of where we are in this process and where we are uh, in this pandemic. Uh, 
Thank you. Um, well, I, I think that Dr. Eden and Dr. Judd really set the tone for where we are. Um, for me, I'm in a unique position. Um, I was, since the concept, since, since this vaccine from, from Moderna was a concept, um, I've been involved in that process. But on the other side of it, as a minority, as a person from rural Alabama, I've had my ear to the, essentially ear to the road and, and kind of understanding the things that are going on, the questions that people have, the concerns that they have. And so putting those two things together, I realize that there's somewhat of a, a disconnect in the information that's getting to getting to these people, to these populations. So just as Dr. Eden said that, that I think a rather bleak uh, example of how emergency rooms are, are backed up and hospital beds are getting filled up. Um, I sit here and I've, I've been talking to a lot of people across the state, across the, actually across the country. And the reality is, is that COVID at this point, especially dying from COVID and severe disease is almost preventable if you get vaccinated and protect yourself. Um, and so understanding those two dichotomies, I mean, you have these two scenarios that people won't get them and people uh, are, are more scared of the, of the vaccine than, than, the va than the virus is killing people. That's the thing that I'm trying to pull together and make sure people understand that these are not uh, uh, equal comparison. Excellent. Thank you so much. That is, uh, that's one of the things we're constantly uh, looking for is how can we prevent, you know, how do we treat, how do we prevent? And the fact that there are tools available to, uh, for prevention is certainly uh, adding to that stress. So as we've talked about our status of where we are, let's spend a little time talking about some of the obstacles and, you know, data. We are a, a data-driven profession in all of our professions, from research to uh, population health to healthcare to cl uh, clinical health. All the things that we're doing is data-driven, but for the person uh, not in data all the time, how do you understand what data is good? What data to believe? How do you how do you get people to understand what good resources of data can help you drive your decisions from the individual? So, uh, Dr. Moore, can you spend a little time talking about that for us? Well, I'm going to say that Dr. Judd is probably going to be the one who gives the more solid statistic. But I like to kind of speak to people on just a regular basis, kind of a, a kind of a factual basis, kind of common sense basis. Um, when this pandemic first started, nursing homes were getting just getting ravaged. Um, so those people were the first ones to get vaccinated. Those were our sickest and our oldest people. So now my question to anyone who's listening is that when's the last time you've heard of, a, of, a, of an outbreak in a, in a nursing home or, or a facility of that type? Um, the other part of it is, in particular in Alabama and, and in many places across the country, over 90% of the people who are in the hospitals right now who are sick and dying from COVID are unvaccinated. So the proof is there. Um, so from a statistical standpoint, you, you can we can show the, the, the bars and the bar graphs and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is that just looking out, looking at what's going on in front of you, the people who are sick and dying are people who are unvaccinated and the people who are are at the very least getting mildly ill and recovering are those, or if they get ill at all, are those who are vaccinated and who are fully protected. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty easy, for me, that's a pretty easy um, statistic and a, a chance to take uh, in getting vaccinated. But I'll let the, the experts uh, have it from there. Absolutely, and this, that's, a great, that's a great lead in to, uh, to, to talk to Dr. Eaton about this. Dr. Eaton, whenever, uh, you're in your populations and you're talking to your people within populations, how do you get them to understand what data uh, is the best data for the conversation? Yeah, this is something that has proven harder than I think we realized. Um, I think we're getting more consensus. So early on, we were hearing from individual 
um, manuscripts even that were making it to the lay press. So I have neighbors who have no medical background who were getting access to these manuscripts, scientific publications and saying, how do I interpret this? And this person says it means X and this other person says it means Y. And that was again, like Dr. Moore's referencing, early in the pandemic, we had individuals speaking out um, and asking us to trust them. But what we have now, which we're grateful for, is we have consensus. We have entire pediatric societies. We have the CDC, we have the FDA, we have entire infectious diseases societies, all speaking in unison, saying the same thing. And the reason they are is that we have a large body of evidence that has been peer reviewed. So over the last 20 months, we had scientists evaluating the data critically, um, deciding which data was no longer relevant, perhaps to Delta, deciding which data we needed to consider now with Delta that maybe is unique or different from past data. And so I think we're very grateful that we have these large national societies of expert physician, epidemiologist, scientists saying, you know, mask reduce transmission, vaccines are safe and effective. It's ideal to have ventilation if you're going to be indoors and limit capacity. So all of these things are consistent across these experts. I think what's challenging for individuals who don't have health literacy or maybe have been swayed by conspiracy theories or misinformation is that we continue to hear from individuals on social media, even on the news. I mean, some of these um, individuals are getting airtime and they're getting a platform, whether it's social media or on the news, and they're saying things that are very different from the experts. They're saying things that are contrary to our conventional wisdom. And when you hear someone who's saying something that is vastly different from your pediatrician and the CDC and your hospital, which may be posting billboards, like in my community, encouraging people to mask and get vaccinated, you need to really question if that is a sound person. You need to look at their credentials. Are they a journalist? Are they an economist? What, what is it about them that makes them an expert? And, and think critically about these individuals who are speaking against the experts before you even read further. I mean, I encourage a lot of people on social media, before you read that article, look at who wrote it. Um, are they a politician? Do they have a political um, stake in the game? Are they selling a product that they want you to take instead of a vaccine? How are they financially benefiting from this? Um, so I would I would be very skeptical of any voice who is encouraging you to um, disregard expertise that you're getting from these large professional expert societies who have been at the forefront of data for the last 20 months. I'm so glad you bring up uh, social media and the impact that it's had on this. And we're going to talk a little bit more about social media in just a minute, but I certainly want to pull in uh, Dr. Judd with uh, epidemiology to kind of talk more uh, about the data and what data, you know, how do you get your, how do you people, uh, not only where you are, but also all over to understand what good data is and how data truly does make the difference in what we do and how we get resources to certain communities and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. The data are so important for us to look at and they're not easy to find. You can find anybody on Twitter or Facebook, just like Dr. Eaton said, that can change what the data says slightly. Um, case in point, one of the things we talk about as epidemiologists is a case fatality rate. Um, versus the mortality rate. And it sounds like hair splitting if you're an epidemiologist, but in epidemiology, case fatality means if you get sick, what's the likelihood you're going to die? Where mortality means for the entire population, regardless of whether they got sick, how many people died? Those are very different denominators. And we always tell people in epidemiology, it's the denominator that matters. It's not the numerator. The number of people that died is not what we're interested in. We're interested in out of how many. 
you know, so how many people died out of all those that got sick? How many people died out of all those that got exposed? How many people died out of all those that live? So it's, you have to really make sure you understand the data, where it's coming from, how they're using the statistics, and make sure that the people that you're reading, that they actually are, um, they're actually quoting scientific articles. Um, they're quoting consensus statements, not just their personal opinion of, of my uh, friend got vaccinated and, and she's the only person I knew vaccinated. That's, that's N of one is what we call it in epidemiology, and it's not really the, the full story. Why is that? Well, it's because risk, that's what we're all talking about is risk. What's my risk of getting sick? What's my risk of going into the hospital? Risk is actually made up of two things. It's made up of the probability that you're actually going to get sick and the consequences if you do. So for example, let's take something like a rotavirus, which is a virus that um, is very commonly circulating in daycares, sometimes in elementary schools. It makes uh, people very sick to their stomach, and they have a, a terrible um, stomach flu for about 24 to 48 hours, but a very low mortality rate in general. People don't typically die. So that's a, a virus that's very common, but the consequences are low, so we consider it not that risky. COVID is very different. COVID is something that has a very high mortality rate. One in a thousand, that might not seem like a lot to those of you out there, but from an epidemiology standpoint, a virus that has a one in a thousand death rate is scary. This is the stuff that, that scary stories are made of when we look at viruses and, and bacteria and what the big ones are that could cause problems for humanity. So when we see a virus like COVID and we know that it has such a high rate of, um, of mortality of people dying from the infection, we consider that a very risky virus. Um, one of the things to know about data too is that certain institutions, they're tasked with collecting data, like the CDC. The CDC is tasked with collecting all of the data that the individual states collect. But you have to imagine these states were not prepared to collect data for a brand new infectious disease. So early in the pandemic, we didn't have the best information in terms of the number of cases that, that were um, occurring. Now we have really good data systems and it's very easy for you to go out there if, you, if you're wanting to look at um, the data to see who's infected, to see what states are having very high levels of infection, uh, which states have very high levels of hospitalization. It's really easy to hop out there on the CDC's website and look at what's going on nationwide. So there are great sources of data um, that you can go out there and find and, and better understand what's going on in your community. But really today, anywhere in the United States, the cases of COVID are just way too high. There's a high probability if, you're, if you go to a gathering that has more than about 25 people, that at least one of them will be COVID positive and infectious, even if they don't know it, which just is a very high probability that you'll come in contact with the virus and potentially be infected yourself. Uh, thank you so much. That's uh, really great information, but also quite startling in some of the numbers that, we're, that you're talking about. And uh, as you mentioned in your conversation, you talked about risk, but uh, you also mentioned some of the vulnerable populations. And so I'd like to spend a little time talking about some of these vulnerable populations, such as the pediatric population, uh, you know, women who are pregnant, or in the elderly population, or those who are immunocompromised. So can we spend a little bit of time, uh, Dr. Judd, to talk about from your perspective in those vulnerable populations, the risks that are associated with treatment and or vaccinations, uh, how does that weigh in? Because I know the pediatric population has not been cleared yet to be able to be vaccinated. However, where are we uh, with that process of being able to understand better these vulnerable populations? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Dr. Moore made a really great point about the nursing homes and how we really studied those early in the pandemic because there was such a high mortality rate. So we do understand COVID in the elderly populations. Um, that's one of the reasons the vaccine rolled out early to those populations. We don't have as much data in pediatric populations. And um, at the moment, there are a lot of kids that are back in school. They're not practicing the same social distancing uh, that we were practicing last year. Some school districts are, some school districts aren't. But to be honest with you, as an epidemiologist, this is a population we don't have a lot of data about. Uh, we didn't have a ton of cases in kids last year because of the way that schools managed um, social distancing, they had masking, they kept classroom sizes down. This year's very different and we're already seeing really high numbers of cases in children. And again, th this is dangerous for children as well. The mortality rate is not as high in children. It's slightly, uh, it's not as bad as one in a thousand. It's closer to one in, in um, 25 to 50,000, depending on the age group. But that is still way too high. In, in the United States, we don't have infectious diseases that have rates of mortality like that in kids. And I promise you, if that kid is your kid, that one in 50,000 matters. And it's really important that we protect certain populations that don't have access to the vaccine. The best methods that we have right now that we know of are social distancing. We know that masking works. Uh, we know that schools that use masking are able to protect the, the student population from having COVID outbreaks. Same is true for social distancing. We know that keeping kids a little bit further apart is one way that we can keep them from spreading COVID. So th those are the populations I think at the moment that we're most interested in studying. Um, to, to better understand what happens. But the truth is for folks listening, we just don't know enough about COVID and kids at this point in time. Excellent, thank you so much for the information. Dr. Eaton, what are you seeing in your population, your vulnerable population, such as women who are pregnant and the pediatric population? Yeah, well, we wish we were not seeing pregnant women at all in the hospital. Um, and I will say with the alpha, the earlier variant, we did not see as many hospitalized women. We saw isolated cases that were very concerning. Um, but now we're seeing a tremendous amount of pregnant women in our hospitals um, with this Delta variant. Uh, what I can tell you is that in the month of August, by the middle of August, we had admitted about 40 pregnant women to our hospital. The majority, actually, I think all of them were unvaccinated. Um, about 10 of, of those 40 were admitted to the ICU and about seven were, were intubated, unfortunately. And that was data, I haven't heard an update in the last um, 10 days or so. So you can imagine if trends continue, that number is much higher. Um, you know, people have asked why, what is it? You know, we're still getting data on this emerging variant to understand why women are doing worse. I can tell you our vaccinated women are not doing worse. So that is a really important reminder. If you are pregnant or intend to be pregnant, the vaccine has been shown to be safe in women like yourself. We have over 100,000 pregnant women in the U.S. alone who have been safely vaccinated. Um, we're seeing good infant and maternal outcomes after vaccination. We know that some infants are going to have some immunity. They're going to pass with some of mom's antibodies, although the vaccine does not pass through the placenta, the antibodies, the immunity does and can protect that infant. So it's really important for you and your loved ones and, and the pregnant women in your community to go ahead, start getting vaccinated, talk to your provider if you have any concerns. Um, but again, we're seeing really, really dismal outcomes in pregnant women and we're seeing their babies unfortunately do, do poorly as well when a mother is in such stress and her body isn't going into organ failure when she's intubated. You can imagine that's a really stressful time for the for the 
for the unborn child. And often we have to do an emergent cesarean section. That is not something I do, but our obstetricians um, are, this is not something that is commonplace. We do not see this with flu season. We do not see this in pregnant women. This is very, very unheard of to have multiple pregnant women intubated and requiring emergency C-section to try to attempt to save the life of their child. Um, so that is definitely new. That is something we're seeing with Delta. Other emerging vulnerable populations, you know, we talked about the children um, that we're seeing worse outcomes in children with this um, most recent wave. Um, certainly those that have chronic medical conditions. So obesity is a big problem for us in the deep south and in rural areas. And we're seeing that unvaccinated individuals who are obese are doing very poorly especially once they're requiring um, oxygen through intubation and life support, it's very hard to get those individuals off the ventilator, um, especially if they are unvaccinated. Um, of the vaccinated folks um, who are doing poorly, it's, it's the elderly, it's those who are immunosuppressed. So individuals who have a transplant or on chemotherapy, um, again, this is a minority. This makes up about 10% of our hospitalized individuals are fully vaccinated. And of them, a majority are, are older with multi-morbidity, multiple chronic illnesses, including things like immunosuppression from chemotherapy, transplantation, high-dose steroids for autoimmune conditions. Um, so that's really a change from our prior surges. If you recall, early on, we heard more about um, elderly and medically fragile making up the majority of hospitalizations, and that is no longer the case. The good news is that a lot of that group has already gotten vaccinated. We know that those that are 65 and older are much more likely to get vaccinated. And we know that a lot of medically fragile patients who have chronic immunocompromising conditions have gotten vaccinated. So we're not seeing them as much in the hospitals or the ERs. We're seeing the unvaccinated, younger, obese, pregnant. We're seeing more children. Thank you. I'm so glad you mentioned vaccines because now I want to spend some time with Dr. Moore to really talk about you know the expertise of being in that vaccine development uh, portion of our of this of this uh, pandemic and now where we are and where we can be and where we should be. So Dr. Moore, tell us a little bit about that, not only the process of approvals for vaccines, but where we are and where we need to be. So where we need to be, honestly, the, the blatant truth is we need to be vaccinated. And so what I want to what I want to want to mention is that this is probably a good time to just talk about mRNA vaccines. Um, you know, there there's a lot of questions. There are a lot of concerns about mRNA vaccines. This technology has been around for quite a while, we just have never had to use it because of the, there's never been a pandemic that we've been in. Um, if you can imagine, my, my background is influenza, immunology, and virology. And when you get a flu vaccine, that virus has to be grown up, usually in, in hen eggs, embryonated hen eggs, and you grow it up, you purify it, you, you clean it up, you take that, so you have a, a virus that you weaken, and then you get exposed to the immune system and you generate an immune response and you protect yourself. Um, in this case, mRNA vaccines, and I have an example because I have a YouTube video that I actually put together to try to explain this. So you have the virus particle, and then with the virus particle, you have these red projections. These are the spike proteins. These are the proteins that are essentially the keys that help the virus get into your cell. So there is no coronavirus in the vaccine, mRNA vaccines that you're being administered. There's only the information to make the spike protein or make the key. If you can make antibodies against the key, the next time this guy comes around, your body can recognize it, code it, and eliminate it. And so that's what we're doing with the vaccine development process, and that's what vaccines are doing. The vaccines are mimicking what a natural infection would do. So I want to make sure that people understand that. The virus, if it infects you, 
it takes over your cell and tells your body to make more of me. That's what it does. And so it tell, it gives your body instructions and it gives it viral mRNA. We just have gotten smart enough to give it mRNA to give information about just this key, which is the most antigenic part of the virus. This is the, this is the part of the virus that is most important and most immunogenic. And we generate antibodies against that. Your body recognizes it. And this is why people who are vaccinated have been protected very well from, from some severe illness and death. Um, but we should be vaccinated. And the development process in my steps, um, I did the preclinical safety and efficacy studies. So with those steps, it was determined whether or not this, this viral, can this vaccine candidate was safe and effective enough to go into human population. Therefore, you move into phase one, phase two, and phase three, ultimately go to FDA, um, and then you get emergency use approval in this case. And it was emergency use approval because we're in a pandemic. If we had waited the 18 months or so you need to just get other smaller information, the most important information is safety and efficacy. You get that information together, then you can give it, give a vaccine. But if we had waited the 12 or 18 more months, we would have lost a couple of hundred thousand more people, if not more. So I want to make sure people understand why things are where they are, why there's not a full approval of certain vaccines, because we haven't been afforded that time. But if you're afforded, if you're if you're given the, the opportunity to get a vaccine and protect yourself, that these these real scenarios are being moved in real time. So we're still generating information about antibody levels, when a booster is needed. And I know that's something we're going to talk about later. But I want to make sure that people understand some of these key key points about vaccines and their safety. These vaccines are safe and they're extremely effective. And the proof is out there. You see people who are not getting sick. Excellent. For the sake of time, I'd like to stay on this topic because you mentioned boosters. I'd like to talk about two things real quickly, talk about boosters, but also talk about the pediatric population and where we are in that next big movement uh, in the vaccination. So, Dr. Moore, where are we? Uh, with you? Know, tell us about boosters and tell us about where we are with pediatric patients. Yeah, with boosters. So with boosters and pediatric patients. So boosters, of course, as you know, for those people who are immunocompromised uh, in some way, they're, they're starting to get their third shot or essentially a booster shot. For the kids, um, Pfizer, as, as most people know, for kids that are um, under the age of or under the age of 18, they're the ones who are, are, are work, they're out there right now. But mo all the companies are working on information about kids that are below 12, that are 12 and under. These are our kids. I have two kids that are fall into that category. And so they're just trying to generate the, the right data and make sure it's safe. If anything, we need these vaccines now, but this should also give give people confidence in the vaccine process. If it were just a situation of just releasing a vaccine and we don't care how safe it is, the vaccine would have been out and they would have been trying to inoculate kids and trying to vaccinate kids. But the safety and efficacy is of the utmost importance. And so even though we need a vaccine right now, these companies and the FDA, they're taking their time trying to generate this data so that it is safe. And, it, and it's effective for the kids when they are able to get it. And so hopefully by the end of the year or, or, or late winter, um, we can have these vaccines available for kids. And, and I'm hoping it, it will be the case because this Delta variant is far more infectious than some of the earlier variants that we've dealt with. But the bad cycle is the fact that the more time this virus has to replicate, the more chances it has to mutate. And therefore we have more chance of generating strains that cause us more, more damage and death. 
Well, that's certainly reassuring to hear about the potential for pediatric patients and not too, not too far in our distant future. So this has been some great information. So far, we've had a lot of great conversation about facts. We've talked about where we are in the pandemic and so forth. But we can't leave without talking about some of the conspiracy theories. So I'd like to spend some time now, Dr. Eaton, can we talk a little bit about some of the things, some of the really far-fetched type conspiracies that we're hearing about, not only about the virus itself and the pandemic, but also about treatment? Yeah, this continues to be a moving, um, a moving message from conspiracy theorists and some groups, unfortunately, that are um, financially profiting, as I mentioned, or have other ulterior motives. But we continue to hear new conspiracy theories, really. So just one recent example with the FDA approval of Pfizer, there has now been messaging mostly coming from the Internet, from social media, that the Pfizer vaccine, which was FDA approved, is actually not the vaccine that is available in the community, which is not true, as Dr. Moore shared with us. The Pfizer vaccine is most definitely the vaccine that is available at your local pharmacy, your health department, your provider's office. It is now FDA approved. It has undergone robust testing for safety and efficacy, and now we have effectiveness data. Um, but this just is an example of how quickly the messaging will pivot once there is a piece of supportive data behind vaccines or even masking or other treatments that are evidence-informed treatment. You often will see this additional anti-science movement quickly pivot to respond in a way that instills mistrust in science and these interventions that are frankly life-changing and miraculous like vaccination. So that's one of the recent conspiracy theories that I've heard about and I've had to debunk. We continue to hear from the group who is very disillusioned with masks. We continue to see studies, isolated studies that suggest that masks are not effective or that the masks we're using are not effective, again, just to instill doubt in the community that what they have been advised by their public health experts is not effective. Um, I really, frankly, did not think that 20 months into this pandemic, people would still be debating masks, but they are. Um, and we have volumes of data showing that they reduce transmission of coronavirus in the community. And, and for your listeners, a lot of us work in healthcare settings. A lot of us, like myself, know that um, we've stayed safe in healthcare settings because we've worn masks throughout the pandemic. Um, so we continue to hear these. I think, again, my message would be talk to your doctor, talk to your public health experts, be very critical of any kind of information you're getting from, from the internet that you can't vet and confirm is credible science-backed data. Excellent. Thank Curry, you so can much. Can I add something spoke? to that? Absolutely. So Dr. Eden made an excellent point. But I, I, once again, I like to deal with the, the facts. Um, if you look at flu season, flu is my flu is one of my expertise as a PhD student. Flu season was almost non-existent last year because of so many people wearing masks. So th there's that real world example of how these things work. When this pandemic first started, it, it evolved from the fact that coronavirus didn't exist. It evolved to the fact that people were saying, well, I don't know anybody who has it. Then it further evolved to people like, well, I don't, I don't know of anybody who's died from it. Now you can't say that. I literally yesterday, yesterday as I'm sitting here talking to you on the phone, 24 hours ago, I talked to somebody who told me that two people in near my hometown, two people related, 
died of coronavirus. And so now this week they're having a double funeral. The person who in part relayed the initial information is a person who's still scratching their head, deciding whether or not they want to get vaccinated. So, so I'm, I'm just, so sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself, what if, if you are not a fan of vaccines, that's completely fair, but you have to stop and ask yourself, what if you're wrong about your stance against vaccines, against masks? What if, hypothetically, just, just, we know that the virus is real. We know that people are dying. Now, what if you are putting yourself at risk for, for severe disease and potentially the death of a loved one or yourself for just, just because you're so entrenched in what you don't want somebody to tell you? But what if it's right? That's what I want people to think about stuff. I want truth. Truth essentially will always come to the top, no matter what. The, the thing about the truth is you tell it once, you can walk away because it'll take care of itself. And so right now, the truth is starting to bubble up to the top. And people are seeing right now that, that we definitely have situations where vaccines are protective, but still people are, are uncertain and scared. And I understand that. But you have to go to trusted sources, not the Internet, not social media. Go to a doctor. The same doctor you would go to if you got sick and you want to get treated is the same doctor you should listen to about getting a vaccine before you ever get sick in the first place. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you, you mentioned and you really it just really drove home the point. Everything that we've talked about so far is really about and you give given examples with flu about wearing masks reduced dramatically the case, you know, influenza spread. I mean, it proves cases in that situation. And also the vaccine is helping us against uh, the, the pandemic. So, Dr. Judd, can we spend a, a, some time talking about just that, talking about the spread of diseases such as that in a population using utilizing masks correctly, utilize, you know, utilizing the tools of vaccinations, how we can help stop this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the first thing I want to say is this mask wearing is not new. It might be new to the United States in, at the end of the 20th century um, or the, I guess the start of the 21st century, but it's not new. Masks have been around for a long time. People wore them in the 1800s, the 1900s, whenever there was an outbreak, sometimes they didn't even know what caused the outbreak. They just knew the symptoms that were happening. It was very normal for them to put on masks. Uh, the masks have evolved quite a bit to, to be much more comfortable than they were back then. But even in the, the West, people would use bandanas the, to, when you had major outbreaks happening. So we've known as a society for hundreds and hundreds of years that masks work to stop the spread of infectious disease. The difference now is that starting in about the 1950s, we started having really incredible vaccination campaigns. We have measles, we have chickenpox, we have smallpox. All of these vaccination campaigns basically eradicated the very infectious diseases that people were so afraid of. The issue now is that a new one came. Um, that's why we call it novel. It's a brand new virus that really hadn't spent a lot of time in the human population. Now we have to go back to our toolbox, to what our ancestors knew about wearing masks to, to keep our own respiratory droplets in our, our body or contained in the mask so we don't give them to other people. And I think that's one of the things that folks just have to think about. It's not that the mask is going to be around forever and you're never going to be able to interact without a mask on. It's just when the disease is out circulating and you know your hospitals are full. That's when we need to pull out the mask and use some social distancing. Try not to um, come into, into contact with as many people as you might come in contact with if you were at, say, a concert or a sporting event or the bar. Any of those venues where people are, are loud because they have to yell to be heard or cheer on their favorite team or sing their favorite song, 
those all produce respiratory droplets and those respiratory droplets can, can be infectious. So we have to focus on behaviors that we know work, that we've known work for hundreds of years, and that will stop the spread of, of COVID and get us back out of this surge to, to more normal levels um, that make it safer to move around the community. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. This has been very helpful. All our discussions today with all of our panelists have been extremely helpful when we start to really look at where we are in the disease process and the pandemic process and how we continue to move forward. In the last couple of minutes we have together, I'd like to go around some final closing remarks, some, some final takeaways from each of you. So Dr. Judd, I'd like to go back to you. What are your final takeaway we have? Final takeaway is that we have to start shifting our mindset into when is this going to be over to a mindset of, okay, how are we going to manage it as it continues to surge? I think we're stuck with COVID, which means a little bit of masking when we're at peaks, changing our social behavior and getting vaccinated so that if you do get sick, you don't wind up in the hospital. Excellent. Thank you so much. Dr. Moore, do you have any final takeaways, some, some, some words for us at the end here? I do. An ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. So rather than worrying about ivermectin, which is an animal, which, which is largely used in animal, uh, animal, as an animal dewormer, which is ironically not approved for animal use, not approved for human use, but people are trying to go use it rather than using a vaccine that has actually been approved for human use. Um, we, need, we need to make sure that rather than getting sick and trying to treat stuff, we need to make sure that we can prevent it. And these vaccines are preventing it and they're doing it at a very, at a very high rate and an efficient rate. So don't, go out and try to find ways to treat something that you don't have to necessarily have in the first place. Thank you. I appreciate that. And Dr. Eaton, any final words that you have for us? Yeah, you know, as a parent, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to keep our kids safe, especially the young ones who are too young for vaccination. And I just want parents and those who are caregivers and grandparents to really be thinking about not just the health outcomes. Dr. Judd did a great job sharing pediatric outcomes, but just remember that it's not just keeping your child out of the hospital. Keeping your child healthy is going to keep them in school, keep them in any special learning or counseling or any sessions that they need, any additional supports they get at school and their peers who may have special needs. So keeping your child healthy is going to allow them to meet their academic needs, their social, their emotional, developmental needs. And I would really just encourage parents as they make decisions for their family to think about the community impact on our kids. Thank you so much. Thank you all. It's been such a wonderful discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time. This is such an informative and very helpful discussion in talking about how we can combat and eradicate the uh, or potentially eradicate the uh, coronavirus. But certainly thank you all for your very uh, wise uh, pieces of advice as we move forward and how to protect ourselves, our communities and our families. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.